0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 28th of October, 2020. The topic was, the social determinants of suicide, evidence and impact. On the panel we had, Leilani Darwin, head of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lived experience center at the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Fiona Shan, associate professor at the Black Dog Institute and the NHMRC Center for Research Excellence in Suicide Prevention. Dr. Catherine Boydell, Professor of Mental Health at the Black Dog Institute, and Duncan Yip, Senior Policy Advisor at the Black Dog Institute. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to tonight's podcast, um, The Social Determinants of Suicide Evidence and Impact. And we've compiled, we've brought together an amazing panel tonight to talk about this particular topic. Before we get started, I just wanted to give my acknowledgement to country. Um, I'm broadcasting from Gordon, which is the Hornsby guy Chase area. And the traditional custodians are the Darug and guy people. But it's wonderful that we are all zooming in from different parts of Australia. And I also want to uh, pay my acknowledgments to the trad- traditional custodians on the separate lands on which we're meeting on. Um, when I first started doing Acknowledgement Country, it felt very awkward, mainly because, you know, I'm a migrant and I've really grappled with several cultures uh, coming to Australia. However, over time, having had to say it um, at every Black Dog workshop, my value for the Indigenous cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community has really deepened. I want to pay my respects to the elders past and present and are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So let's get started with our podcast tonight let 's introduce our panel members now, what i 'm going to do is do a bit of a whip around um, and get our panel members to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their expertise in the context of this particular topic. We might start first with Duncan
2: well thanks Carol. Uh, my name's duncan i 've been a black dog for just over a year now. Um, before that, I spent uh, just over ten years in federal and state governments so um, I guess my interest in this particular area is around the public policy angle and, um, you know, what what is suicide prevention policy? What is mental health policy? And that's um, kind of the perspective I'm bringing to the conversation today. Thanks, yeah. Carol.
1: No worries. Catherine, why don't you introduce yourself next?
3: Thanks, Carol. Hi, everyone. I'm Catherine Boydell. I'm a professor of mental health at Black Dog. I am uh, a Canadian and I've been in Sydney for the last five years. Um, And I'm a sociologist, which makes this discussion this evening particularly pertinent. Um, My program of research focuses on examining what are the social factors um, that influence our health and well-being. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion this evening. Thanks for that, Catherine Leilani.
4: Hi everyone. My name is Elani Darwin. I'm the head of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Lived Experience Centre, um, New Knuckle Kondamuka woman from Stradbroke Island in Queensland. Um, and I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which I am on today, uh, which is um, west of Brisbane and Ipswich, the Jagara Yagara and Yugarapool people. Um, I do lots of things, <laughs> way too many things to really kind of get into it. But I guess for me and particular a extra things and, and uh, you know, what I consider a privilege to be involved in the White Paper and particularly this chapter is elevating and bringing um, insights and perspective for First Nations people around holistic um, care and how social determinants really do play a key role in suicide prevention and supports within our communities.
1: Thank you so much, Leilani. Fiona?
5: Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, Fiona, I'm Associate Professor at the Black Dog Institute, uh, and I'm with the Centre for Research Excellence in Suicide Prevention. I joined Black Dog in 2012, I think, and my first project was actually working with some Aboriginal communities over in the Kimberley on um, an app called iBobly. And so I think the thing that I realised fairly quickly from working with those communities is that that individual approach approach just isn't enough. And uh, similarly, my latest uh, project has been implementing large-scale multi-multi level models of suicide prevention at the regional level. Uh, and again, I think there's work you can do at the individual level. There's work you can do at that regional level. Um, but really, to to make things work um, as well as possible, we really need that whole of government approach to suicide prevention. So that's. I guess through uh, several years of experience, that's where my interest has come from. And so we've started to have a look at the literature and the evidence around it.
1: Fantastic. Welcome, everyone. And thank you so much for serving on our panel tonight. Um, Now, the reason we decided on this topic was because it coincided very much with the release of the white paper at the Black Dog Institute. And I did do some of my research. I actually tried to read a good bulk of it. It's a long, quite a long document, but so informative. And I really want to encourage everyone to hop onto the Black Dog. Institute website to find it and download it and have a read yourself after tonight's podcast. But it opened with quite an impactful uh, statistic, which is more people die by suicide than by road accidents every year, which really shows the scope of the difficulty and the problem that we faced at the moment. And we've really tried to focus in today on the social determinants um, of suicide. So let's get started with the basics first. Um, Fiona, what are the social determinants of suicide? What are some of the, the key findings?
5: Yeah, so not surprisingly, a lot of the social determinants of suicide are similar to the social determinants of health more broadly. So the things in our um, environment, uh, whether it's social, economic or physical, that shape our behaviour. So if we're thinking about um, suicide, then it's things like unemployment. Uh, So when we see increases in unemployment, we also tend to see increases in suicide unless the government responds with appropriate policy. Um, Things like socioeconomic status. So, again, when we've seen increases in suicide recently, they've tended to be in lower socioeconomic areas as opposed to higher availability of of mental health care. So if we have higher access or better access to mental health care at a population level, we see lower rates of suicide Uh, Similarly with alcohol availability, so the more available alcohol is in a a society, again, uh, if that changes, so if we either increase or decrease, we see corresponding changes in suicide. And then finally, things like access to the means of suicide. So um, one of the the best evidence-based strategies that we have is at a national level managing access to the means of suicide so they're they're distinct from individual level factors Um, they obviously interact with those individual uh, factors in the way that they influence behavior and I think what's important to note is that they're also amenable to change at a societal level so I mentioned before with unemployment uh, we know that there are certain government responses that can moderate or soften the impact of unemployment on suicide for example
1: um, and so that's particularly interesting because it tells us that suicide prevention is quite a complex um, problem that we have to solve because so much of the time as a clinician myself, I tend to focus on what is the intervention? What is like, you know, the thing, the RCT that's going to work for this? And it sounds like that's not going to be the answer.
5: Yeah, look, um, there was a there was a, a major global review of suicide prevention back in 2016 of all the evidence. And the conclusion was that there is no single intervention that's going to reduce the suicide rate. We really need that multi-level approach to suicide prevention. So whilst the work that we do as clinicians is is really valuable in helping individuals um, or, or groups of people, um, there needs to be more. So it's about looking at both that societal level as well as the work that we're doing as clinicians. Absolutely.
1: Catherine, tell us a little bit about your work in social prescribing and how it addresses social determinants of health,
3: because that's one one intervention, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's multifaceted as well. So, social prescribing actually links people to non-medical services in the community and creates intentional pathways between clinical care and non-clinical supports, community supports and resources. And it really recognizes the social determinants of health, that people's health and well-being can be affected by a range of factors, as Fiona mentioned, social, economic, environmental, and really addresses that growing recognition that some healthcare consumer needs could be better met by other kinds of support in the community or in conjunction with other types of support in the community. So I always think about distress as caused often by something amiss in our environment, for example, marginal housing or unemployment, as Fiona mentioned, or being in debt or socially isolated. So social prescribing is a holistic person-centered and very much bespoke, so tailored to individual needs. So again, that focus on non-medical needs that affect health and well-being by linking people to very local community cultural groups or organizations. So for example, um, think lunch clubs, exercise on prescription, walking groups like park run, creative or cultural activities, debt advice, um, housing support to help with a wide range of problems, including social isolation or housing issues or unemployment.
1: Absolutely, um, Lilani. That sounds like social prescribing. How would that work within, you know, the indigenous cultural context as well? It sounds like it might be quite a good fit.
4: It's actually a really, um, uh, I guess, a model that is kind of already existing in a lot of communities. Um, When we look from a cultural perspective, we really do, um, at a community level, look to engage and have connections and and relationships, and that's really important to our wellbeing. Um, There's also, I guess, uh, you know, issues around really managing um, sometimes what can be not the best experiences in some traditional methods of, um, you know, seeking, seeking help uh, when you need it. So really actually working with someone in, in our communities to allow them to self-identify kind of what their key stressors are and, and how to actually get that kind of um, relief that's relevant to them at that point in time is really important. Absolutely.
1: Um, what is the evidence base for social prescribing, Catherine?
3: Well, there's quite an emerging, burgeoning evidence base. In fact, I think in the last couple of years, there have been at least four uh, major reviews of, of the evidence in social prescribing um, across quite globally. But really, um, the UK has led the way in terms of rolling out social prescribing um, at, a, at a societal level and putting the funding behind it but really showing the impacts in terms of uh, fewer visits to the GP, uh, fewer presentations to emergency departments, um, enhanced mental health and well-being, re- reductions in social isolation, um, increases in community inclusion and sense of meaning. Um, so, you know, on a number of different fronts, um, there's been a lot of evidence. I think one of the areas where there is work to be remain Remaining is around longitudinal work in terms of that the long-term impacts of social prescribing. But again, I think one of the, uh, the key items within social prescribing is it's quite bespoke so that it's really working together with um, an individual in terms of what are their needs and preferences um, and again, really um, focusing on what the, the source of the issue might be. And again, it's very much related to what's going on in their day-to-day lives.
1: We've got Susie who's asked, um, Catherine, what is the research on the uptake of social prescribing upon referral?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question because um, social prescribing uh, in its sort of uh, Cadillac version involves a link worker. So very often it's targeted towards GPs for whom I think at least uh, 20% of their uh, clinics are for people that um, come for non non-health reasons, for social reasons, and uh, the importance of, of having the link worker. So it's one thing to say, uh, you know, here's a script for, you know, an exercise program or a library group or, you know, uh, a social club. Um, but it's, it's having that support to ascertain whether, uh, you know, Does does the individual have difficulty actually accessing, getting there? Are there transportation issues? What kinds of help or assistance or support might they need to engage with whatever it is that would be helpful so i think in terms of success for referrals when you do have that link worker um, it's very high um, and in our own experience um, with a, an arts on prescription trial um, i've never recruited um, the the needed number in a research study so quickly just you know i think demonstrating the interest in being involved in these kinds of non-health non-medical activities
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that, Catherine. Now, I wanted to go back to Leilani because um, one of the things I think we really love as a clinical psychologist as well, you know, wanting to work in in a more holistic approach. Could you give an example of how social prescribing and a holistic approach would work for Indigenous communities in the context of suicide prevention and mental health?
4: Yeah, I think it's really important to uh, work with communities and understand that sometimes when someone's at a really high risk, the traditional response might actually be quite overwhelming um, and usually uh, does um, often involve uh, potentially police uh, and, and you know, the hospital services and that can be quite triggering and even more traumatising uh, for some of our community. Uh, what I see works really well is where the community kind of have their own support structures around making sure that that person is safe. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's kind of almost like the last resort is to kind of bring them into a traditional um, health service. So it's it's sometimes also just about being present, um, making sure that that person has someone with them, that they can sit down and, and not... Um, you know, be be on their own, uh, really working with them and just including them in activities in the community, saying, hey, there's a barbecue or a football game or something going on down here, do you want to come? letting them talk about what are some of the things that they need assistance in. I mean, some of our panel members have spoken about it. You know, is it that finances are really a massive stress point uh, for that person and how can we link them into um, appropriate support? are there trusted people in the communities that they can really go to where they feel comfortable talking? I mean, uh, trust and relationships uh, 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 play a key role in that. And, um, you know, If we're not really looking from a holistic holistic perspective, we're not really understanding that it takes time to do that. Uh, We have expectations that you go in for a a brief session with the GP and say I'm not travelling too well and then you referred on um, but not necessarily able to address what might be some of those key issues at that point in time. Yeah.
1: Um, now, turning across to Duncan. Now, uh, how can public policy help address the social determinants of suicide? Because it sounds like there's this holistic approach, it's not just one thing. So, what does it mean in terms of public policy?
2: Thanks, Carol. And look, um, I guess public policy is it, it can be a really powerful tool, um, and It can be something that governments and all levels of governments can use to really enable the conditions that lead to good quality of life. So I'm talking about policy in a general sense um, here, but I guess the qualifying factor here is that it's also quite complex. And um, the fact that we've got three levels of governments and multiple areas that impact on mental health and suicide prevention means that um, the tool, while it can be really effective in certain instances, um, also needs certain conditions for it to, to do that. So um, whether it's you know fiscal and economic policy, what we spend our money on, how we tax people, so equally uh, what the other panel members have talked about in terms of financial stress is obviously quite linked there, or... Um, you know, regulatory policy as well. What are the rules around, what are the laws that govern how we live? And all these sort of things link um, in an upstream kind of way to um, those, uh, I guess, those overwhelming conditions um, from that lived experience perspective uh, of suicide behaviour and suicide ideation. So to, uh, maybe, maybe to give a couple of examples, um, and Fiona's already covered some of these, but Um, Around unemployment, obviously, um, at the moment, things like JobKeeper um, not only play an economic role, but also play uh, a protective uh, in suicide prevention. Um, Poverty and homelessness, obviously, um, quite linked. State and federal governments have many levers. They can provide social and affordable housing. Um, They have, you know, tax and other levers there too. Um, You can provide a minimum wage you can um, provide job seeker and new start payments you can um, our governments um, quite generously has um, you know we're kind of a social welfare democracy type society so there's also family tax benefit disability support pension all those sort of things that um, protect against financial stress which is one of those factors so in in some respect, it's it's further away um, from a policy sense. But if you get those public policy broad settings right, you'll provide a situation where those individual individual risk factors um, uh, are affected in different ways. And and I can go on to the different things around alcohol. And um, uh, if you do read the the white paper, um, the risk factors around lo- where you live, uh, for instance, or Um, If you've been um, uh, subject to domestic violence or have a mental illness, all those sort of things, public policy can play a strong role in determining that. And I think my view here is um, social policy, economic policy can be. So it can play a really uh, important Absolutely. role at the population now, level. Duncan, to, you've to mentioned set the like COVID-19 right for our and our society response can help to it, right? suicide Um
1: And it's so interesting because when we talk about like the mental health response and how to reduce um, suicide rates, so many people go straight to, you know, the mental health pot- portfolio. How do we increase sessions? Um, what can we do on just that front? Um, and it sounds like it's more than that. Whoever thought that JobKeeper would be related to reducing rates of suicide? Right, and that's particularly interesting because it seems like it's so far away from a mental health policy, but it is.
5: I mean, we don't entirely understand the mechanism of it, but the research is fairly strong from um, the, so, for example, for the global financial crisis where some countries experienced really big increases in unemployment, and those countries which had generous social welfare systems in place, who had active um, labour market programs in place, either experienced no increase or very small increases in suicide compared to countries that didn't have good good safety networks in place, I suppose. So, you know, I think it's just that recognition that um, when someone attempts suicide, there are many things feeding into it. Um, and if someone is already struggling and then they lose their job, um, that can affect a whole range of things from uh you know, it might affect their mental health. Might mean that they're withdrawing from their social networks, um, and and it might mean that they they've got um, significant financial stress. It might mean that they kind of lose their sense of identity as the the provider and the family. So there's all of these things that pile up um, in response to something like losing a job. Uh, so you know, if, if government policy can soften the blow of that, then then it seems like that's an effective strategy. Um, So, yeah.
1: So it sounds like, you know, we're going into the next phase, which is JobKeeper sounds like it's continuing, but are there any worries currently related to, as we head deeper into COVID-19? Because there's a question I think everybody's asking at the moment with regard to mental health. Um, What are some of your worries and what would you see ideally happened, you know, in response to COVID-19 at the moment to try and reduce those suicide rates?
5: Yeah, look, um, I guess the good news is that so far, um, at least at the state level and in other countries, we're not seeing uh, increases in suicide deaths yet. We are seeing increases in attempts um, and we are seeing increasing calls to helplines. And I know every psychologist, including myself, has a massive waiting list at the moment. The demand for services has gone through the roof. So we know people are really distressed. Um, I guess what we're hoping is that the government response in terms of as you mentioned, job keeper and job seeker um, will will soften that, um, but also that um, things like increasing access to um, mental health. I, what I'd like to see is a, a corresponding increase to community mental health, actually, because I think that's the that's the big gap at the moment. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's the kind of response that we'd hope to see. Um, so, when the government makes these responses, they're not just thinking about economic stimulus. We hope they're also thinking about people's mental health and their risk of suicide.
1: Now, beyond COVID-19 response, what is a very good example of a successful policy implementation that addresses the social determinants of suicide?
5: Yeah. um, Look, um, someone asked in the chat before about um, means restriction, so I thought I might talk about that um, because, in fact, uh, as I said before, it's one of the best evidence-based strategies at the population level. So, back in I can't remember it was the fifties or sixties, but when barbiturates were um, heavily restricted in Australia, so they used to be far more available. Um, so that alone was something that um, uh, produced a, a decrease in suicide rates in Australia—a fairly significant decrease in suicide rates. Um, so, you know, we, we know that they were fairly, fairly dangerous drugs, and people were using them for. Um, all sorts of um, things, including death by suicide. So so restricting access to that has been really effective. Um, The the other means restriction things that have happened have not been um, deliberate means restriction activities. They've been implemented for other reasons, but they... By almost by accident, reduced um, suicide. So the introduction of catalytic converters in cars uh, was a, a pollution measure, um, but again meant that the, the, um, the exhaust fumes were, were less dangerous than they used to be. Um, and then the, the gun buyback and the tightening of gun legislation in Australia um, following the Port Arthur massacre was also another thing which saw a reduction in suicides in Australia, so so means restriction is really important. Um, it, it's important at the population level. It's also important as clinicians that we think about this if we're concerned about a client's safety that we're working with them to reduce um, access to the means of suicide. So people often have a quite specific means in mind, um, and so when you make that less available to them or make it much harder for them um, because of the the state of mind that they're in, they they're often not that. Um, able to expand their thinking to other means. So if you can interrupt an attempt by making the means more difficult to access, you can actually, you can actually save lives. So that's a really important um, strategy. Um, Duncan mentioned some of the other ones. So we know that alcohol availability, um, when we see changes in alcohol availability at a at a societal level, um, that is also important in reducing suicide risk. So um, things like um, uh Alcohol outlet density, um, legal drinking age, um, to a lesser extent, um, taxes and making alcohol more expensive. Um, it's it's actually more about restricting availability in terms of outlets and the like. That's that's effective as well. Because alcohol
4: yeah, no, can, is yes. Sorry, I just want to. I just want to pop a little question in there to you on that one. And um, this actually goes back to my time working in corrections with um, male offenders and and running programs like this. And it was really interesting. Um, and even stuff that I've done with young people. How do you think if we look at Australia as a culture, right? Um, it's almost like every single possible event that could happen um results in a drink yeah yeah um how do we manage that when it's like oh you got a job how hey, let's have a drink oh you lost a job let's have a drink oh you're in a, a new relationship let's have a drink and so on and so on. oh you moved house should we have a drink oh baby let's have a drink how do we actually you know um
1: oh, boy, Leilani, we have a pandemic
4: let's have a drink oh yes <laughs> yeah. like you know how do we really kind of look at changing that culture and what i i think has become quite normalized um you know to be to look at alternatives to that is there any research or evidence that shows that there are things that have worked in in reducing kind of what is the australian way of you know kind of celebrating or commiserating yeah um, look, you're probably pulling me outside
5: my area of expertise here, Leilani. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but what, what I can say is that actually what we're seeing is, um, is changes across the age cohorts in in alcohol use. So it's actually more um, my age group, who are likely to be the the heavy drinkers, the binge drinkers. And what we're seeing decade by decade is younger people drinking less than their parents and older generations have. So that change is already happening. Um, what's produced it, I'm really not sure. But, um, you know, when I look at other kinds of um, harm reduction strategies like smoking, like um, road accidents, those sorts of things. It's been a combination of community education but also legislation. And I think it's really important to understand the importance of um, regulation, as Duncan was saying, in how it influences our behaviour. Now, of course, there are arguments about um uh, public good versus individual rights and that's always going to come, come up around alcohol um, as it did when we saw the, uh, the lockdown measures in, um, uh, in Kings Cross. So there are always those debates to be had but I really think it's that combination of both community education, um, societal change and, and regulation.
1: Would that be the, Catherine, would that be the power of social prescribing? Because when we think about it, all those things we're talking about in terms of suicide prevention, it's like, you know, access to alcohol on the policy level, but it also means that potentially social prescribing might help in this circumstance when you're seeing maybe an individual becoming very reliant on alcohol and, you know, would that work in that context? My apologies. I'm just throwing this at
3: you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting conversation, I guess. First of all, I'm just sort of thinking about the, the as you said, Leilani, sort of the Australian way. And, uh, you know, coming from Canada, I, I can tell you it is. It's very like, wow, it's, it's a real difference that I've noticed in terms of. drinking culture Um, so it's it's interesting to think about the ways that that might play out but in terms of your question Carol with social prescribing again I think that the whole the success of social prescribing does rest on working together with that individual to determine what those needs are and social prescribing really is an umbrella for so many different uh, community resources in the community um, across basically all the social determinants of of health. And it's interesting because there's a little bit of pushback in terms of using the term social prescribing, because for many, there's a critique that, well, prescribing is still very medical, medical model. And it's really trying to move more holistically beyond uh, the biomedical model to really embrace what's available in the community. And I guess with respect to, Suicide prevention, I think about social prescribing as being that sort of low intensity, um, sort of moving downstream, if you will, to sort of that more really preventative aspect in terms of connecting people with their communities, um, feeling that there's a a much more significant sense of connection via um, these community resources that really are already present and exist in our communities um, even in rural communities. So think about um, the presence of of local galleries across rural New South Wales um, and the extent to which, for example, Art Gallery of New South Wales is really trying to engage community, engage people who wouldn't otherwise go to a gallery, for example, but bringing the gallery to them wherever they might be. And I think, again, that really speaks to the importance of connectedness and the pervasiveness of loneliness. Um, in our society, I mean, to the point where now you're getting ministers of loneliness being appointed. Um, There was a review a few years ago about um, the significant uh, mortality rates um, that are associated with loneliness. So, again, I think social prescribing goes a long way towards addressing some of those those more social issues.
1: I'm going to bring Duncan back into the conversation now. Um, Are there – what are some of the – barriers and challenges for governments in enacting some of these policies? Because we've talked about some successful policies and there are more policies that we need to implement um, to try and get those rates down. What are some of those challenges?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, look, policy is complex, right? So, I mean, um, Fiona mentioning alcohol is, is is a prime example of something that's really, really complicated. And it's also really um, difficult to um, please everyone with a regulation or a price or a tax that actually um, uh, suits everyone's cultural and personal and uh, and other needs. So I, I think that's the first thing to recognise is that um, uh, public policy, it's political, it's about values, it's about economics, it's um, it's about power relations between individuals and groups. So um, I think that's one thing. Perhaps another is that um, policies often... Uh, incremental I guess is the way to put it Um, you kind of chip away at little things around the edges um, both in a fiscal sense but also in a a long-term reform sense and you might not get to an end goal that you would like um, for several years um, uh, from the point that you have an idea and by the time you get halfway there the world's changed you might have a pandemic or you know it's 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 just um, a big web of things that need to be factored in, not to mention that we've got three levels of governments, so we've got local, state and federal, um, all having a role to play in alcohol policy, for example, um, all having a role to play in housing um, and and other things. Um, I think perhaps another challenge is how governments are traditionally structured, so we're kind of follow a um, almost that traditional westminster approach where we've got ministers with their individual portfolios and um some of the other guys have mentioned a whole of government approach and particularly for suicide prevention given how complicated it is you really do need um ministers and portfolios to talk to each other i think that's kind of one thing and um uh, from that, you, you also have a multitude of state and federal departments, and um, you know public servants and bureaucracies. But um, and in, in different areas, particularly in social policy, you also have complicated markets. So you've got NGOs that you know deliver services. Um, things that are some things are done in house, other things are contracted to people um, in the private sector or the NGO sector. You've also got the complication around, um, you know, advocates and and um, lobbying, and um, you know, sometimes public policy has the um, gold standard of being evidence based, and you know, um, the, the perfect theoretical framework. However, um, you know, the investment decision might come down to um, a marginal electoral seat, or might come down to um, someone who speaks the louder. So I I guess this is a really roundabout way of saying suicide prevention policy is complicated. The mental health system, as a lot of, you know, is complicated. And, um, I think perhaps the, the way, um, and, um, I will pass to Leilani to talk about some of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues as well here, but I think, um, the, the, the way I think forward at the moment is to use or almost to use COVID-19 as our reform vehicle. So this is, a, this is one of those events um, that hit pretty much every aspect of, of our lives, individually and socially, economically. And um, I think gov- different governments around the world have responded in different ways with different results. And this is almost a really good catalyst to think about some of those more difficult changes to the mental health system changes to um, suicide prevention policy um, we've also got some major inquiries happening um, uh, in the space so the productivity commission um, has handed its final report to government and it will be released imminently as i understand um, there's also the work of the suicide prevention task force um, with christine morgan so i think governments have recognized that suicide is a really um, prominent social issue and are trying their best to do things that they can, but all those of things. That I, describe,
4: are, are <laughs> Thanks, of Duncan. Um, and um, I don't know. Um, I like that, that, that you kind of pointed out that um, Westminster ap- approach uh, that we have in this country to that. And also just to note for our audience as well, I happen to be again in a quite privileged position to be an expert advisory group member advising Christine Morgan on the advice she gives to the Prime Minister, um, which is quite good. And I think that kind of brings me to that. Perspective of um, you know policy and and reform in this space, and what often can be quite a paternalistic uh, response and approach that. In fact, rather than empowering and involving and, and being inclusive of um, consumers and people who are accessing services, um, quite often we see this top down, you know, um, this is what's going to work and this is what we're telling you. And I think, uh, particularly with a lot of the work that I've been doing, and, you know, I had a great chance to review all of the chapters of the white paper and bring perspectives, um, you know, from not just a lived experience, but from a, a first nations perspective as well. And some of those considerations we're talking about policies that, um, often don't reflect diversity. Um, we look at Australia as a country and we are extremely diverse. Um, our cultures are rich, um, you know, and and varied and and a lot of the the, the issues that I see in blanket approaches just really isn't going to hit the mark. My challenge, and I guess, you know, that i put out to everyone and anyone in really considering right down to GPs and, and your own practices and the work that you're doing is to give consideration as to who are making those decisions about the policies. Are there opportunities to bring in people who have lived experience of accessing your services or accessing other services that are already doing work in? communities or are in some of those support networks um, whether that be through employment support or you know supporting people in dv situations and other areas um, actually look outside your sphere look outside of where you normally would and and seek the advice and input from people who are going to be working with you to really inform and shape that um, and just one more point that i'd like to add in on that too If we don't get the right people writing the policy, we find these (laughs) loopholes and every uh, local, state and federal um, agency that I know of, I've seen will find a loophole in a policy where if it's not, you know, you must do this, uh, you know, we recommend that you have this kind of approach, then our best efforts to include consumers, carers, Peers and, you know, community perspectives, um, even though sometimes it sits somewhere within a policy, it's not actually given enough. Um, uh, I guess elevation and almost like that mandated response, which, as I said, we don't want to learn um, the paternalistic, uh, you know, kind of uh, response in, at a community level, but definitely we need some really strong guidance and direction through government and decision makers as to what and how that could look like.
3: If I could just build, sorry, just build on what uh, Leilani's saying is I uh, just, uh... I think it's really important what you've highlighted in terms of that lived experience, experiential wisdom that was fundamental to the white paper, really acknowledging experiential wisdom and the ways that it works together with empirical research evidence and from a knowledge translation perspective how that's really best practice in terms of ensuring best possible uptake of a policy or research finding is to really ensure that you have that meaningful involvement of your stakeholder group at the outset, who's helping you to identify what the problem or issue is in the first place, but also, um, you know, what's meaningful or helpful um, to them in their lives. And I think that's, that's really critical. And um, I think what's, Really beginning to happen is, is really seeing these very meaningful um, examples of co-production and, and co-design that are much beyond just, uh, you know, talking the talk, but really um, celebrating this, this involvement at a really fundamental level.
1: Yeah, and Catherine, really great that you've actually interjected because I had another question for you, which is, you know, in Australia, I'm so used to having that research background, right, where um, we run the RCT as scientists and everybody else are our participants and our clients, right? Um, It's a different approach from where you came from, right? We were talking about your Canadian background and how it's just common to include stakeholders as part of that research scene.
3: Yeah, I think it's there's a longer history of that, probably mid-80s when I was working in a large psychiatric hospital, and we would hire and train adults with schizophrenia to be part of our research uh, program and would help us, uh, you know, identify the key gaps. And, uh, you know, I remember our first foray into, you know, trying to get ethics approval and how absolutely shocked the ethics committees were, um, and, you know... I, Ultimately, it was just, I think it resulted in better research because we were confident that we were really examining um, what was important to consumers of health services at that time. But I think another feature as well is it's underpinned by, again, by policy and funding mechanisms so that when you have the resources in place that are going to support the funding of involvement, of healthcare consumers and their families. When you have the funding that will allow for innovative knowledge translation strategies, um, I think that really makes the difference. Um, When you have the funding that supports true consumer-led initiatives that decades later are, are are still valid and, you know, flourishing businesses. Um, so I can think of, you know, a, a catering business, a courier business um, that is run by, um, supported by, staffed by consumers of mental health services. So I, I think um, there's lots to be learned. And this is all sort of embedded in the scholarly literature as well in terms of what works um, in, in sort of more unique and pure um, lived experience involvement.
1: And it sounds like we're needing the stakeholder and consumer involvement, not only at the point of care, Leilani, Leilani, which you talked about, right, and program development, but Catherine also at that research level, right at the very beginning.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, within Black Dog, we're really fortunate to have, you know, lived experience leadership that's really um, working with the entire research teams to ensure that that's happening um, throughout the research process. Fantastic.
1: Now, back to Duncan. Um, What are the priority interventions or are there multiple policies that need to be that is needed to help reduce suicide risk?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think linking back to um, perhaps where we started, um, talking about how complicated suicide is, um, I think the short answer is no. There is no there is no silver bullet. There is no single thing that we could do as a society that will reduce suicide. And I think um, the fact that over you know many many years the suicide rates have still um, continued to to rise or be at an unacceptable level um, is basically a reflection of how um, how much further we've got to try and understand what what the issues are, but also try to enact things that um, uh, will, will help bring those rates down. Um, having said that, um, uh, as as Fiona mentioned, um, we do have a. a you know, a building an evidence base is is really important. Knowing what works for specific people in different situations, um, addressing their um, specific um, conditions, whether that's um, things that are individual level or things that um, are more socially determined, and um, what what addressing some of the risk factors around um, perhaps um, childhood trauma or um, you know where someone lives or where someone, how someone works or um, all, all those things through an entire life that um, might lead to suicide risk factors. And I guess, is there, are there priority things we should do? Um, we do know that some things work. So I think at that clinical and community level, um, the best evidence shows that um, implementing lots of strategies at the same time in a community um, is um, the best approach so I think that's one thing continuing to doing uh, multi-component interventions at I guess at this also at the at, at the moment it's kind of at that trial stage so around the world um, the evidence is still building exactly what which components um, work in the best situations but you've got to do it um You've got to continue to do it. You've got to continue to implement those strategies. Is that a major challenge because you don't see outcomes straight away and it's not one minister
1: that can take credit for that suicide reduction, right, suicide rate reduction. It's almost experimenting with multiple components and then, you know, you start to see it a few years later coming down and, and it's too long to wait. For. for some people, there's not that incentive there, right, if that's your portfolio and trying to show success of policy implementation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll um, uh, flick to Fiona shortly, but I think my view on this is that, um, you know, an election cycle is three years. So you're absolutely right in that um, at a political level, it's hard for even a health minister Who's you know ostensibly it's underneath the health portfolio um, to be able to see something from a um, from a trial to an implementation to a scaling up to a evaluation to an outcome. So um, in order to do that, you've got to do it over several years, which is belong sort of beyond an, an election cycle, as as you can put it. Um, so uh, absolutely, that is one challenge. Uh, the other challenge is to. Um, step outside health. So I think a lot of our discussion today has been um, policy levers that are beyond the health minister. So um, uh, you know, Minister Hunt at the moment um, does not have a direct say over uh, where um, one can access um, you know, alcohol, or and um, has no direct um, influence over what state governments decide to do in terms of providing housing for vulnerable people. So all those um, cross-government issues, um, as I mentioned, is a challenge. However, um, I think the answer to the question is um, you've got to do lots of things. You've got to do... You've got to do the clinical stuff. You've got to do evidence-based treatments. You've got to do. You've got to uh, spend money on prevention. You've got to do the research to make sure that you're doing the right things in prevention. Um, equally, you've also got to um, try and address those those social tensions. So you've got to address those social conditions that lead to suicide risk factors. Um, and a lot of that is around addressing. Um, you know, social deprivation, it's around reducing inequalities. social...
4: Um, Duncan, can I just, uh, can I just add um, one um, comment to, uh, particularly in, I guess, the relevancy uh, of um, research and evaluated uh, interventions and support. I think from a cultural perspective, one of the things um, that we haven't done well, that we can and should do better, is really considering culture. Um, uh, and not just from a First Nations perspective, but culture more holistically from our immigrants and other people that are here and are trying to get visas. And I know that's come up in. Um, and I was looking at the question, going, "Oh, this is really complicated. I'm not quite sure how to how to answer this." But um, uh, particularly, you know, the, the use of language, uh, our, our campaigns, those interventions from a clinical perspective. Um, do the way, you know, um, westernised clinical models uh, are asked and really, you know, kind of do an assessment on someone, actually translate Um from English to to people to understand. I mean, and that's the same for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Some people still in our communities are learning English as a fifth or sixth um, language uh, before learning the different native tongues of their family groups. Um, I think cultural practices and and healing models really should be Integrated and working alongside uh, Westernised uh, models of care and research and evaluated um, things. I mean, we do have a lot of uh, uh, research and evidence around, uh, you know, culture and, and its role and, and you know, say, for example, um, you know, Nunkari healers in, in Western Australia, uh, we have different places up in Broome in that where we will have traditional healers um, from uh, different countries come in and support clients in hospital this is actually one of the things under the fifth national mental health plan that's been um, included uh, as uh, you know a preferred way of of working and supporting our communities particularly through the work of the Gayadui um, declaration and um, subsequent centre that's been head up so we really need to make sure that whilst you know, there's a really strong push for these clinical models. I've seen those models fail um, to really actually identify and support the needs of, of, of um, Indigenous people you know those false kind of responses are like yes yes but they don't really understand what you're saying so you know having support with clinicians and GPs and other people that are on the ground actually trying to do those assessments to better understand that and I still say it and we've had these conversations at a national level with the, you know with our Indigenous leaders and I'm like will somebody please take on the challenge of creating an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, mm-hmm. assessment tool. Uh, you know there are some great things that tracy westerman has done i will say from a, a, an affordability and practical you know kind of perspective i think not so so practical in in some spaces uh, so far as those tools but the the methodology behind that and what she's been able to collate really shows the need to adjust uh, our use of language and, and our current kind of clinical assessment models
1: yeah do you think my even
4: starts like at a you know
1: early career training level, because when I think about suicide prevention, we are trained to use a clinical tool, which is safety, you know, assessment and safety planning. And then that's it. And I imagine that's not going to work very well in a cultural context because it feels now that with I'm thinking about it quite paternalistic. You know, I come in, I ask you a bunch of questions, so I force you to fill out this form and it it doesn't, it's not going to make sense to cultures where relationships are really important
4: Uh, relationships are super important and it takes time i mean and this is something you know even in some of the advocacy and and younger people and and other areas and you know it's like this you know, thinking that you're going to have someone come in and that they're going to trust you (laughs) enough to share with you what they have held in and not felt comfortable sharing with people who they, you know, have relationships with is almost quite ludicrous in some ways. Um, And it's, you know, in some of the, the answers that I've responded to, it's like our models of care don't really allow even for example you know a GP visit it's it's a very brief period of time otherwise you have to book additional time who's going to really be able to if they're given the opportunity to talk about the things that have got them to the point that they don't think life is worth living anymore in 10 minutes and then kind of be put out again Um, some of those clinical models too, I've seen and I've had this stuff with a lot of the engagement and consultation I've given in the digital um, mental health space too is you're going to get markers for things that, one, aren't a priority um, and, two, you know, there are some things that happen in our communities and our family homes. You know, there are issues around violence. You know, food safety and security is, is a thing. But someone might then seem that they've got some kind of eating disorder, but in fact they probably don't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's really important to do that and to understand that, you know, you might just have someone saying yes or no for the sake of getting in and getting out, and that's where we see that we're not getting the right level of support for those community members.
1: So resources um, for people like me, clinical psychologists, allied health, where we can actually get skilled up in some of these areas um, to be more culturally sensitive and to, to think outside like our traditional training and that clinical model.
4: Mm. and we actually are quite lucky at black dog institute because i've used all of my connections and stuff and so we have quite a few amazing indigenous psychologists um, that actually work with us um, it, just even as you were talking about you know the the early kind of uh, re- responses in in training and this model of don't talk about yourself will actually you know for us give us a little bit of information about who you are you want us to share the world with you so just talk a little bit whatever you feel comfortable about but it's also understanding um, almost what I have seen and heard and this is something I know in Victoria has been spoken about quite broadly is this issue around our you know community going in and seeking support um, and psychologists and others not being prepared for the level of trauma um, and stories and, and and um sharing and then our people actually having to console them almost for their whiteness and lack of understanding. So yes, there are a lot of really um uh, passionate um and informed um, aboriginal and torres Strait islander consultants um, uh, who can provide advice and training um at an organizational level i mean it's something that i also do as part of my um private consulting as well is supporting workplaces uh just in debunking some of the myths about you know you can't look an aboriginal person in the eye Well, actually don't we just read body language of everyone and see how they feel comfortable you know it's this how do you set up your practice room you know if we we're sitting down with family members and things like that are we literally putting a chair across the room from them and going no no, no no we're sitting next to them you know not quite as confronting so there's there's a lot of practical things that you can do to educate yourself um, I would say uh, the the social emotional um, well-being (sighs) I, I will include this as something to send out to everyone. There's a there's a range of resources and stuff that really go into detail around looking at that holistic models of care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the second um, edition of the Working um, Together booklet uh, that can be really practical and just educating. Um, learn a bit more, you know, in, enlighten yourselves around what uh, what can be helpful and look for the signs where someone is just going yes, but they don't really understand you?
3: I think that also I, I think that also extends to research and the types of research um, that are that that's being conducted because again, um, a, a psychometrically tested survey or measurement instrument is not going to is not going to do it when um, it's it's more than the narrative or it's, I'm thinking of more ethnographic longitudinal methodologies that would be able to access um, the the social context and cultural context in a way that no measurement scale can ever do. And I guess just to highlight the extent to which, you know, these rigorous methods are needed, uh, but a different way, it's a different way of conducting clinical work, but also a different way of conducting research as well and i think that's really important to consider um, when thinking of diverse diversity and diverse groups in terms of you know different ways of knowing and different ways of engaging in the research process as well and i guess like anything else it's um it's thinking about how each offers a different a different way of knowing and a, a piece of Any puzzle. So again, I think it's highlighting complexity and almost embracing the messiness. um, But that there, you know, there are different methods to address that.
1: Absolutely, Fiona. What are some of the practical things to remember Um, for us practitioners? You know, what resources do we also need to keep in mind? Because we've got some wonderful tips from both Catherine and Leilani. But what about you? In
5: terms of what we need to to use? Yeah. Um look I, I think um just reflecting on the conversation that's been going on and hearing what Ladani had to say about um uh, cultural differences and um the care that's required I suppose I would reflect that um culture is absolutely important but but I would also say that the relationship is always important no matter who who is in the room with you and um you know so I think it's about um providing not just treatment but care um, and there there are people who sit at either end of the spectrum who you know some people would argue that all you need is treatment other people who would say you know you don't need psychiatrists you don't need treatment what you need is care but actually for most people we need both right so um and and like any outcome in psychology um when you look at the research the thing that predicts better outcomes in terms of reducing the risk of Repeat suicidal behaviour is the connection that the person has with their with their therapist, so that's always important. So I think I just wanted to emphasise that before I go on to talking about the resources that we might need. Um, so, so in terms of, I suppose what we've talked about is understanding that suicide is driven by much more than just mental illness or or poor mental health, um, and so in recognising that we we do need to be thinking beyond just providing treatment for um, depression or trauma or anxiety or um, and, and, you know, also targeting suicidality directly, we also need to be thinking about what are the broader needs of the person. And that's not something that we're necessarily trained in in psychology. That's often traditionally been more the role of the social worker or the, um, the case manager. Um, but, but I do think we need to be thinking about that alongside general practitioners about um you know what are the the free financial counselling services in our area, for example? What are the employment services for people? Um, what are the so so most regions have a um, a non-government organisation that helps to get people into a low-cost accommodation. So I think just thinking broadly about the kinds of things that our clients need and making sure that we're building up our local networks um, so that we're able to connect people into those sorts of additional services outside of just addressing their treatment needs. Absolutely.
1: Now, I'm actually going to turn to some of the audience questions while we're here. Um, just to now some of these you've already answered but i think one that's quite interesting is the one by Noki. um a question for leilani and Catherine. since we're recording it be nice for the podcast audience to be able to hear it as well are there any research done as to how well primary care services such as local gp aware of the role of holistic care if not utilize holistic care as part of the preventative or supportive care for people with mental health
3: um it's interesting because when we um talking about social prescribing, for example, uh, for many GPs will say, oh, this is nothing new. I'm doing this already. I'm already engaged in, you know, with my my patients offering other alternatives outside of the health system, depending on their needs. And I think the, the point is that you know, social prescribing is a formalized process where it's not expected that the GP would be aware of every single resource in the community to be able to refer to. And as I mentioned earlier, has the support of this link worker who often is a social worker, which is interesting, um, so that you've got that support to actually make that connection happen. And in fact, you know, the the social worker, link worker, um, case manager, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in terms of the the actual research base on on GPs and the extent to which they're they're drawing on social prescribing, I would say the best examples would be to look to the UK where it's been rolled out systematically um, across the country. And again, because of the strong funding underpinnings, um, they also have a very nice um, uh, digital platform um, for social prescribing. And the way it works is that the Community resources in all of these small towns and cities um, will actually sign up to this platform because what they get out of it, in addition to being on the roster, if you, you know, so to speak, is they get reports, which they in turn can show their funder um, that they've impacted these outcomes. So again, it's it's a win-win, and so it's 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 building this base and having it there um, on this platform. And in fact, there's been some work. particularly with COVID, how social prescribing has worked and continued on virtually. So I think for GPs in the UK, um, they're very connected with social prescribing, which is just embedded within the culture itself. Um, Other countries are also, um, uh, I, I guess implementing it on a more widespread scale. So I know that in Ontario, the province that I'm from in Canada, they've rolled it out in terms of collaborative care centres. So again, um, one of the comments was around, well, how do we get connected? Well, the GP is embedded in a community clinic that involves the link worker and um, many other resources under one roof, so to speak. And so the preliminary evaluations have just come out for that. And again, very positive findings in terms of impact on um, patients not only uh, with you know w- mental health issues, but also general physical health issues as well. So social prescribing kind of um, addresses uh, the more broader health
4: and, and determinants of health. Absolutely. Uh, now, sorry, okay. Carol, I actually have a bit of a different perspective um, from that, and 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 a couple of points that I I'd, I'd like to kind of highlight. Um, one of them being, I guess, the difference between um, GP clinics and services in areas where there um, isn't socioeconomic disadvantage, where there aren't higher levels of um, unemployment, you know, lack of engagement in education, you know, quite high incarceration levels, etc. The The services um, in reality that you are offered um, from GPs are, can be reflected quite differently. Um, And I often hear uh, of rhetoric and conversations where it's kind of just this in and out that it's actually not even it's just a what's your problem today do you need a script thank you goodbye it's really difficult for people to then start to build a relationship to actually um, even ask them for the kind of help because they're like well I'm just a, I'm just almost like a cash cow it's like in and out and we know that um in Australia GPs are heavily incentivised I mean I had a, a brief period of time um, working for a, a, a primary health network and I was like wow and, and essentially those GPs don't really get involved in sharing a lot of their statistics and things that they're doing additionally unless it is incentivised I think the other perspective is in that, and it's something that I kind of tried to elevate um, as part of the white paper too, is really understanding um, access to the same levels of treatment that um, people from some areas just don't have. So if we're really looking at a rural and remote area, uh, this sense of uh, social prescribing and and you know bringing into services that are non-existent, is not a helpful model <laughs> in fact it's quite impractical even if we're looking at some of the what we call gatekeeper training interventions where we're training community members and others in um you know in hospital, in health services and and other you know agencies to um support people um, but then a lot of those models are based on referring on to services but we actually don't have services in some of those spaces Um, and nor are those services necessarily um, culturally uh, practical or informed for example one of the things that we're seeing and we've had a a massive increase um, particularly with with COVID in this response to um, telehealth and, and digital services um, in quite a few of those communities, it's a laughing joke. It's like, oh, they're rolling the head in on the trolley. Like, at a human level, you know, technology absolutely has a role, but we need to do better to understand around that sense of relatability and relationships as to what's practical. And the other thing that I do know too um, is that there's a lot of work that's gone on into really um, having GPs identify if Suicide and mental health is something that Uh, has become almost like a specialised area. We have had a lot of stories and and realities where GPs have people come in who are suicidal and literally get up and walk out the room and try and find a nurse or someone else to have a conversation with them because the risk um, from a health perspective comes into play with that and they just don't feel comfortable. So not all GPs, when you go in and have these conversations, are actually adequately um, informed or comfortable uh providing responses. So that's my little different perspective. Something
1: we've got a little bit of challenges there. Yes. In terms of navigating, right? And and trying to get those services out to where they are needed. Um, Next question I've got on here is for Fiona, might be a a quick one for Fiona from Inoki. Inoki, my apologies if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. How broad is the resources made available and how accessible are they for people with mental health um, issues, thinking suicidal when they need them? I'm not sure if I read that correctly. Do you get the main gist of that
5: question, Fiona? Can you read it out again? Sorry, Carol. It's
1: the second one in our chat box for Fiona. Oh, yes. How broad is the resources made available and how accessible are they for people with mental health challenges um, when they're thinking uh, in a suicidal way and when they uh, need
5: it? Yeah. Um, look, not not broad enough, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I think um, there are a few layers to the answer. Uh, the, the first is that when people are in crisis, you um, it's it's almost too late uh, to be reaching out for help because your instinct is almost the opposite to withdraw and to um, and to believe that no one can help you and that no one you're a burden to everyone and and no one's going to care anyway. Um, so it's actually really difficult. And um, we've got a project going on under the uh, on at the moment called Under the Radar, which is actually looking at making sure that we are able to reach those people who are not currently seeking help um, but but i would say that the majority of people who die by suicide have had some contact with either a general practitioner or a mental health professional in the lead up to their to their suicide and um and and we've found through our research uh, with gps that um, many people are not disclosing if they turn up to their gp for i don't know pain or um, you know, some physical problem. Um, around 40% of the people who are screened, you who know, identify as having depression, anxiety or alcohol use problems or suicidal thinking. Um, and they're there for another reason. They're actually, they've never seen their GP for this kind of thing. So I guess what I would suggest is that as clinicians, part of our role is making sure that we're checking uh, whether we're a GP or whether we're a, a psychologist. Um, and, and I would also um, point to the value, I think, of some of the, the e-health resources that are out there, so um, the safety planning tools, for example, the iBobbly app uh, for young Aboriginal people, um, other kinds of e-health programs, because often when people are not really ready to seek face-to-face help, they might be willing to go online and to engage with a, um, an app or an online or, or a website um, as a stepping stone to getting more intensive help down the track. Um, but the evidence base for those sorts of things is still developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we've got a lot more that we need to do in that space. Absolutely.
1: Um, just had a smile there because Anurky told me that I pronounced his name or her name correctly. So or their, their name correctly, to use a gender-neutral pronoun. So let's do, as we're heading towards the end of this podcast, let's do a bit of a whip around, and I'm going to bring Duncan back in now, um, and everyone to be able to to uh, speak to this particular question. What is on your wish list for suicide prevention in the next few years? I know that's a big question, and we only have 15 minutes left.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be brief. I think um, in terms of... Immediate things. I, I want. I kind of would like governments to keep the gas on the pedal in terms of COVID, and um, sort of the post-COVID transition period. Importantly, as um, you know, the health crisis will become more of an economic crisis uh, for a, a more of a prolonged time. Um, those protective measures and um, policies are really important um, as a as a population suicide prevention measure. Um, I think uh, equally sort of in, in sort of the medium term, um, trying to reduce, um, I guess trying to reduce inequality is kind of the, the one thing I think here would, um, would have a, a broad effect in, in suicide prevention and mental health generally. But, um, and why I say that is that, um, a lot of the things um, that drive some of the risk factors are around social and economic inequality. And if we can um, tackle those really big issues, and COVID is a really good catalyst for this because, um, you know, governments have recognised that they need to, to use their um, fiscal policy at this point in time to protect society from certain things. And I think um, having that focus over the medium term is really important and um, there are things that government can do at that level to continue to recognise that it's not not about um, our, our measures of social progress perhaps um, are, are perhaps inadequate because we often focus on um, the, the level of our gross domestic product or the level of our... Um, uh, our political standing in, in in a global sense. But um, suicide prevention, mental health is about uh, individual well-being. It's about social well-being. It's about those cultural factors that Lani talked about. So I think, um, and I agree that, you know, measurement does is not always the best thing to do, but having a way to incorporate that into our feeling of, um, doing well as a nation is really important uh, in, in this space. The other, I think the more practical steps I'd like to see are um, things around ensuring um, different portfolios talk to each other and have, um, you know, the, the right uh, combined funding mechanisms, the right combined evaluation and outcome approaches that um, that suicide prevention needs. Um, that is not um, you know obviously sort of the um, the raw figures around uh, perhaps suicide deaths or suicide attempts is really important but there's also some broader things that we should be evaluating and looking at um, to to understand um, w- what is driving suicide rates and how to how to get those rates down um, and and um, I think the big thing for me is also around uh, reform of the mental health system. So it's so complicated. It It's um, it's driven by so many different incentives and players that um, at times it feels like it's not actually that helpful to um, the way that it's currently set up. So I, I think tackling those um, structural issues, decision-making issues, government structures will help um, who will help the court and particularly set the scene at, at that sort of policy and strategy level that will allow for? Absolutely. A lot and of the Duncan, I that, think um, I love uh, your approach to COVID 19, which is it's an opportunity level.
1: to make these really big changes as a catalyst. Because all I've heard is bad news with COVID 19. And it's so lovely to hear somebody at a policy level say that, to say it's a real opportunity for us to make some significant changes. What about you, Fiona? What do you think are some of the what's on your wish list in the next few years for yeah. suicide prevention?
5: Um, look, look, I do think that the next big push um, is to start to look at the social determinants. So to look at those those inequality factors that that Duncan mentioned. You know, um, and and I think consistency across, look, that's that's a big challenge, consistency across decision-making, right? But um, I guess what I see that I'd like to change is that on the one hand we have governments investing in um, mental health treatment through providing... Um, you know, better access, increasing the number of sessions, etc. Um, we've got governments doing wonderful things in terms of supporting safe spaces, which are peer-supported spaces where people can go when they're in crisis, when the ED is not the right place for them. We've got government investing in really good aftercare services, where if someone's had a suicide attempt or a suicidal crisis, they're getting really good ongoing care. Um, on the other hand, we see decisions that are really inconsistent with preventing suicide, like some of the decisions that are being made in the refugee and asylum seeker area, and that was an issue that Vivian raised in the chat before. And I think, um, you you know, I think what I'd like to see is government considering the impact of all their policy decisions on um, mental health and suicide. And, in fact, um, Suicide Prevention Australia did a survey a little while ago which showed really quite strong support for exactly that, for governments to actually consider um, the impact of what they're doing on 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 those outcomes, not just the economic outcomes, as Duncan was saying.
1: Absolutely. What about
4: you, Leilani? Wish list. Wish list. I mean, wand. my wish list is massive, but um, I'm you probably just have only one. One. Time. I know. I know. I <laughs> know. No, <laughs> If I was to say something, um, and I've been putting this out there more, so get your pens out, people, Um, it's called have hashtag courageous conversations. Um, We need to sit with the uncomfortable. We need to hear and remember that behind the statistics, that behind the research and everything that we're doing to make changes for reform, that these are people. These are loved ones. These are mothers, fathers, daughters, sisters, uncles, children that we are losing um, at ridiculously high rates in what is a first world country where, from my perspective, we shouldn't be. And I think that when we take the time to sit in those uncomfortable spaces and to hear the truth about the full story that someone courageously chooses to share about what have been the parts that they've found helpful and what have been the parts that at times have been failures, failures of many, um, on failures of some. Uh, We will not always be able to get this right, but I think we should be empowering um, and elevating the lived experience voices um, in the work that we're doing moving forward, and particularly from a First Nations perspective we know what the priorities are. We know what we should be working with and we need to move away from what has still continued to be quite a paternalistic model in this country. Um, I would say on behalf of many that we've had these conversations in the sector um, give the money back to our people to do our work for our people, Um, but explore options and what that should look like. So yes, hashtag courageous conversations. We need to be having more of them and we need to sit in the uncomfortable.
1: And hopefully like having, remembering the human face of, you know, suicide is going to, because it sounds like there's so much to do and sometimes it can be really challenging and remembering that they are family and they're friends that we've lost is going to motivate us to to do the really difficult task of getting these policy changes happening over a really sustained period of time. Yeah. Catherine, what about you? What's on your wish list?
3: The benefits of being last, um, I would say I would really want it to remain the priority, the high priority that it is currently. Um, And I think to acknowledge, I think the great work that is being done. I mean, just sort of being part of of this white paper has really highlighted to me the amount of work that is going on that, you know, we can't solve these issues tomorrow. But I think, um, you know, as as my um my colleagues have illustrated, there's so much work that's going on in terms of, you know, clinical alternative models, um, embracing lived experience. Um, I think doing a lot of advocacy work, and I, I would just hope the momentum and the enthusiasm continues because I do think um, I'm an optimist that things are moving in the right direction. And so, I guess my wish would really be that this continues. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, I'm very hopeful for the future.
1: Fantastic. So thank you all for being on our panel today. I thought it was such an interesting discussion. We've covered quite a bit of ground moving from policies to even just on the ground, you know, in terms of how we modify our practice to be considerate of social determinants um, of suicide. So now I'm just going to reshare my slides again. I move on to the next slide as we finish up tonight. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. This is just a reminder, and we've really promoted this tonight, thanks to Leilani, and Catherine, Fiona and Duncan, uh, the Black Dog Institute. We have so many resources on, on there, um, so do come and explore our website. Um, just a little reminder as well, and I think Melissa's going to do this very quickly, we've also got our next podcast on the last Wednesday of next month, focusing on catamines and um, treatment-resistant depression. Um, and so do join us again uh, in a month's time. You can also follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn um, and check out our previous podcasts as well. We have plenty of online tools. We've got the TEN, um, which is the essential network for health practitioners to support you um, and your wellbeing. We also have our wonderful app, Mind Compass, and our online clinic. So this is just a little reminder that um, beyond this podcast plenty of resources available to you thank you so much everyone we didn't get to every question but just for our panel members as well thank you because i know that many of you were typing furiously at the same time and answering all these questions um and thank you for joining us tonight so with that i want to say good night and uh see you later see you next month
0: thank you for listening If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.